James chapter 5, we'll read from verse 13 to the end of that portion of the scriptures. James chapter 5, I commence reading from verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We continue in our study of the book of James and drawing closer or drawing near to the conclusion of the book, we come to a familiar passage centered on prayer. And James is addressing this all-important subject of prayer. He lived a life like all of us. He lived among people just as we do. And he was one who gave himself to write on prayer but also history says Eusebius, the historian, writes concerning James that he used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew, like, grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. So often did he pray that was referred to as old camel knees because he developed knots on his knees for long seasons of prayers. And from this excessive righteousness, he was called James the Just. Now that's what the historian Eusebius writes uh, concerning James. And we, we see this even in his letter concerning prayer. And James no doubt lived at a different time, in a different society from ours, but the difficulties, the struggles of life are very much the same. And every generation is, is forced to deal with difficulties of its own, struggles of its own, adversities of its own, and all are called to pray. We are all called to pray. So regardless of the advancement of our society in which we live today, one of the things that still remains a constant for God's people is that God's people must pray. God's people are called to pray because there are certain elements that we face that are beyond human comprehension, human ability that can only be dealt with by Almighty God. And hence we see here being called to pray. And our text this afternoon is, is one which has brought a lot of comfort to many, a lot of hope to many, but it's also one which highlights 
the importance and the power of prayer. And if there's anyone who doubts the power and effectiveness of prayer, an honest reading of this passage and many other passage in passages in the New Testament, you should put those doubts to rest. God does answer prayer. Because prayer is talking back to God his word. The Bible is God talking to us or speaking to us. And prayer is us speaking back to God his word. And God does honor and answer his word. And so we see here James begins to deal with different aspects of prayer. And what we see this afternoon and where we will center our thoughts is the instruction in prayer that James gives. The instruction in prayer. And we see this from verse 13 all the way to verse 15. But also what is interesting is that when you read James chapter 5, verse 7 to 12, the word patience or an, an equivalent of it or synonym of patience appears seven times from James chapter 5, verse 7 to 12. And then also, in our passage, in James chapter 5, verse 13 to 20, the word prayer appears seven times. And James' point is this. When situations arise, where patience is required, prayer is the key. When situations arise where patience is required, prayer is the key. Prayer is the key. And so James concludes his work or his letter with exhortation to pray. And we see that this is even also the way in which Paul ended most of his letters. He would end with an exhortation to pray. We also see the author of the book of Hebrews and also the author of the book of Jude ending in the same way an exhortation to pray. And, and the way the New Testament authors will end their letters this way is they knew that whatever it is that they've been writing or addressing, they will only be possible if they are accompanied by the power of God. And hence the need to pray. And we also see the, the, the apostles in Acts chapter 6 where they say they will not give up prayer and the word to save tables. So for them, prayer and the word was the side of a coin. Prayer and the word was one coin, but with, diff with two sides. And that ought to be true of us as Christians. As we study God's word and hear what God is saying to us, we must live in obedience to his word. And the way we are going to live in obedience to his word is that we will pray, asking God, to do the very things that is promised to do in his word. And so let's open up those uh, verses and draw lessons for ourselves this afternoon. The first thing we see is prayers in affliction. Prayers in affliction. And that's the first part of verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So we see James highlighting the prayer or prayers in affliction. And he begins with a situation which must have been a common thing. He, he was dealing with individuals who must have dealt with someone close to them who was going through suffering. And James challenges his audience that they need to determine 
if suffering is a present lot of any in their midst, and if it was, they needed to pray. And, and you see, James continues with this, his, his style of writing, his interrogative form of writing, where he asks the question, a rhetoric question, and then he gives an answer. And you see that throughout his letter, that is style of writing. When you read in chapter 2, verse 5 to verse 7, he, he does the same. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and all those things? He's asking questions and giving answers. He does that in chapter 2, verse 5 to verse 7. He does that in chapter 2, verse 14 through to verse 16. He does that in chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, again he does that. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, and then in chapter 4 and verse uh, 13 and 14. And again, all this is just to show the James star of writing, where he, he has this interrogative form of writing, where he asks questions, searching questions, and these questions determine that the audience gives an answer, and as they give an answer, they themselves know what ought to be, uh, to be done. And hence, James reminds them. And, 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 and these answers that he gives are imperatives. Keeping with James' style of writing. And, and the question challenges the audience directly. And then in each of these, you see that there's a single babe or singular babe which now makes the test of living faith at an individual level. So it's not just asking questions and as in making a broad statement, but he's asking questions that are broad and the answers that he gives narrows down to each individual to search themselves and ask the question, if this is true of me, is this also true of me? So in this case, in our passage, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he says, let him pray. So, so James is not categorizing sufferings. He's basically saying, if there's anyone among you who is suffering, let him pray. Now, in the original language, the verb rendered, is anyone among you suffering, more, more literally means, is anyone experiencing bad things or misfortunes? Or has anyone experienced misfortunes? And if anyone is experiencing or has experienced bad things or misfortunes or troubles, as other versions would put it, James says, he must pray. They must pray. And the suffering that James is talking about is one in which he is speaking to help us see that the suffering that James has in mind is one which basically is pointing us to this reality that the suffering is one that is from with the outside of an individual. The individual is going through suffering, not because of the fault of themselves, but because of something that is brought about them because of other elements. And this is 
what he had said earlier on, for instance, in verse 10 of chapter 5, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And James is saying, is writing to a people who are out there dispersed due to persecution and they are going through different forms of suffering. And these kinds of suffering are not because of their own doings. It's because of their faith in God. And now James is saying, whatever it is that you are going through, you must pray. You must pray. Whatever the external misfortunes might be, James is saying the biblical thing to do is pray. And the reason why James is doing that is that it's, as Christians or as believers, when you are going through suffering, and especially if it's because of the, the doings of others, they're doing it to you, or it's other people causing you to go through misfortunes or suffering, these external misfortunes can easily make one conclude that they're outside of God's will because they stem from the evil in the world. And as they are attacking the righteousness, one, the righteous ones rather, one begins to think that maybe it's outside of God's will. But James is saying, even in those moments, you must pray. And so he asks, is anyone among you suffering? And then he said, let him pray. Now, the words let him pray, they are in what you refer to as the present imperatives. It's a, present in, it's a command. And this is direct the sufferer to make a habit or a practice of turning to God whenever he or she is in emotional distress. When he says, let him pray, he's saying, let it be a continuous habit of those who call upon God that when they are faced with a situation that is causing them a lack of peace, when they are suffering, when they are in trouble, or whatever it is that the misfortune they are going through, which is not because of their doings, the first thing they need to do is that they must tend to God and pray. That must be a continuous practice of all of God's people. And so what James is saying is that instead of you indulging in introspective of self-pity or complaining to others about what you are going through, you must instead turn to God for refuge and strength. James is encouraging us that yes, when we pray, prayer may not necessarily change the situation. At times it will, at times it may not. It all depends on God's sovereign grace and wisdom. But what prayer does is that it gives strength, inner strength to bear bodily whatever it is that you are going through as you submit yourself to divine providence. 
When God allows suffering to come upon you because of direct or indirect acts of others, what will keep you stable, what will keep you going in those moments, it's not simply you complaining or self-introspective, looking at yourself with pity or wondering whether there's something wrong you've done before God for you to go through what you're going through. James is saying, tend to God. And as you cry out to God, He gives you the inner strength to bear that which you are going through as you submit yourself to divine providence. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. That's a command the scripture is giving us. And those words, let him pray, are singular. They are not plural, so they are singular. And it's a reminder that this is a proper response of each individual to his own situation. At a personal level, you must commit yourself to pray. And especially when you are suffering, suffering should drive a believer to pray. When affliction or suffering are upon us, we are to appeal to God for strength and help. For we recognize that we cannot overcome whatever it is we are going through in our own strength, but in the strength of our Heavenly Father. We are encouraged to pray rather than falling apart. We are encouraged to seek God and to trust God that when we call upon Him, knowing that whatever it is that has befallen upon us has no direct connection to any acts in our lives, but simply because of divine providence, God in His wisdom has allowed us to go through such a patch in life. James is commanding that we must pray. We must pray. This is even heightened in times of affliction. And oftentimes as Christians, when we are in trouble or suffering, the last thing we want to do is pray. We, we want to sort out whatever it is that we find ourselves in, whatever it is that divine providence allows us to go through. But James is saying, you must pray. Don't forget to pray. Yes, while you make plans, while you want to see what it is you can do about your situation, while you want to see how you can come out of it, James is saying, you must pray. Don't forget to pray. You see, the prayers in affliction. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So the question is, do you pray when afflicted? Do you delight to pray in affliction? Do you go before God when affliction are upon you and plead for inner strength? Plead for him to change the course of things. Plead for you, plead before him that he gives you this strength to bear what you are going through. But the second thing we see is a prayer of adoration. We've seen prayers in affliction, but now it's prayers of adoration. 
prayers of adoration. Again there we, we, we see James is writing and is, is saying in the last half of verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. He, he now directs his attention to those who are cheerful. And, and, and this depicts a contrasted emotional situation. He's still dealing with, with the attitude of prayer here. And now he gives a contrast. The first is in affliction. And then he says, is anyone cheerful? Even there, James says, let him pray. Let him pray. That's what James is telling us there. That if there's anyone who is enjoying himself, anyone who is in this spirit of cheerfulness, James writes to us that let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, as he's writing, he knows the situation of human beings on earth. There are those going through afflictions, but there are also these who are living in the same environment as those going through affliction, and yet they were cheerful. And, and the verb pictures an inner attitude of good cheer. It's this attitude of good cheer, inner attitude of good cheer, being of good courage or being in good spirit. Now, this, this vein, or this is the only other time it's, it's, it's used in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 27. And Acts chapter 27, it's the case of the Apostle Paul, you remember, when he was trying to encourage his, his, his friends, his companions, to take heart or to be of good cheer uh, when they were about to suffer a shipwreck on their way to Malta. Acts chapter 27 and verse 22. But for the sake of context, verse 22, since they had been without food, that's they, they are facing a storm as they are going, uh, uh, selling, as they were making sail to Rome, and they face a storm at sea. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and Encard this injury and loss. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart. So that word take heart is the same as cheerful or to be of good cheer. Take heart for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the sheep. And James employs the same word in chapter 13 when he said, or verse 13 when he says, is anyone among you cheerful? That word cheerful is the same as take heart. And, and the picture that we see is that this does not refer to light and active amusement, but an inner attitude of cheerfulness and delight. This has to do with being of a good mind and attitude, dealing with joy, that one possesses within this joy that only comes not because of, of external factors but because of the joy that resides in you 
because of the presence of God the Holy Spirit in you. And so when, when the Bible says, is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. He's saying to us, if anyone has this, possesses an inner joy, let him sing praise. When the Bible says, let him sing praise, it's, 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 it's a directive or a command that the believer's jubilant feelings should find expression in sacred songs. This inner joy should find appropriate expressions in sacred songs, spiritual songs. Some version will say, let him sing psalms. And the picture there is that in a world prone to adversity and pain, there are those who rise above the adversity and pain. And this is through the help of God. As they overcome this adversity and as they experience joy, in such times we are encouraged to burst in songs, songs that depict what God is doing in our lives. And those songs that come out of the joy that we possess also says a lot about the state of our hearts before God. Because one who possesses joy, inner joy, because of their position in Christ, because of their, their sins being forgiven in Christ, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the songs that bubble out of them talk about God's amazing work in their lives. But the opposite is, can also be true of one who's empty of salvation. They can also experience some form of temporal joy. And what the difference would be, them the joy that swells out of their hearts. The songs do not evoke praise to God. It's about themselves or what the world can offer to them. We've seen of individuals who sing. And some of them sing simply because they, they are drunk. And they will be staggering through the streets and basically saying, I sing because I'm happy. And when, when, you, when you examine this, their mental state, you can conclude that what is singing is not them, but what they've taken. It's the alcohol in them that is now bringing this sort of temporal joy. Now that's not what James is talking about. James is saying, those who are of a good mind and attitude, those who are dealing with the joy that one possesses within, let them sing sacred songs, and these songs will be about God and His amazing work in their lives. And James here is still dealing with prayer. And here I pray of adoration. He's encouraging the audience to offer praise and adoration through prayer for the joy they feel within. They are responding in gratitude to what God has done. And everyone around them cannot mistake their joy, that this can only be joy that comes not because of outward possession, but because of inner joy. And this ought to be true of us as Christians. We should offer praise every time we pray. 
When we think of what God has done, when we think of the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus, when we think of everything that God has done to make our salvation possible, we must sing to this great God. And, and the, the situation that John's, rather James gives us in verse 13, there is suffering and cheerfulness. These, they form a strong contrast to cover all the areas of emotional experience of life on earth. We experience suffering. We experience joy, cheerfulness. And James is saying to us as Christians, the gloom valley and, and the shining height can both be dynamic instructions in strengthening our faith. Because both of these situations bring a conscious relationship to God in a believer's life. When you're in the valley and you are going through suffering and you're wondering what's happening to you, or when you are on the heights of joy, James is saying, remember God in affliction and in adoration. Remember God. And thirdly, we see the prayer of intercession. The prayer of intercession. That's verse 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let, him pray, let, let, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And here now James turns his attention to the prayers that are offered on behalf of others intercessory prayers and he makes this appeal in verse 14a that is anyone among you sick let him call for the elders of the church and, and this centers on a particular form of experience James is saying if anyone is sick the way they are sick gives us this idea of being without strength, bodily strength, or being weak in body. And because you are weak in body, you don't have the strength to be in the house of the Lord. You don't have the strength to be with God's people. You don't have strength to make your way to where God's people are gathered for worship. And James is saying, if that's the state in which you are, Call on the elders of the church. Those who are sick in body, who are without strength, are encouraged to call for the elders of the church. And the elders of the church will pray, will respond and pray over the sick. And you see, that James is also underscoring the importance of belonging to a local church, a healthy local church, where you are actively involved. And one of the benefits of belonging to a local church is this, that when you find yourself sick, without strength, weak in body, you can call upon the elders of the church to pray for you.
But also see that we also need each other's prayers. The calling on of the elders shows us that we need each other's, each other's prayers. We need to call upon God's people to pray for us. When we are in need of prayers, we are always in need of prayers, we must call upon one another. We must be able to count on one another for their prayers. And you see, James places the burden for such intercessory prayers upon the sick, the one who stands in need of prayers. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. James is not saying we must now begin to, to, have, to conduct a, a, a healing service where we bring the sick and parade them in front of cameras or in front of the congregation and begin to pray for them. James is saying that the one who is sick, let him call the elders. And the idea there is that there is also this element of privacy going to the individual where they are and praying for them in the confines of their home or in the confines of whatever place it is that they are confined to. And the reason is there are times when physical ailments become so bad that people are not able to make the, their presence at church gatherings. And James is saying, call upon the elders. And you also see that there's, there's a measure of faith being exhibited here. The one who is sick has shown faith in the Lord, in the prayer, and even in the church. Faith is essential in prayer and intercessory prayers are not exempted from faith. The fact that the person who is sick knows that if I call upon the brethren, the elders, the church, and they join me in praying for my situation, for my sickness, I'm exhibiting faith that the Lord will hear the prayers of the saints as they pray for me. Prayer is the response to the need. But now James is saying the needy individual is directed to involve the elders of the church. They are, to, they are called to come to the person confined by sickness. And after the elders have been summoned in faith, they are exhorted to pray over the sick. And James also say they are to pray for over the sick and to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when the elders are called upon to offer intercessory prayer, they will pray for the sick and we see them engaging in anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And, and, and we need to be clear about what James is saying. When you read the New Testament, there were two types of anointing. There was the sacred anointing of the Holy Spirit for a specific task. And this is found when you read in, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Uh, maybe let's quickly just look at those. Luke chapter 4 verse 18. You remember it's that account when, when the Lord Jesus Christ takes up the scroll in the temple and he, he reads from Isaiah in verse 18 of Luke 4 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now here the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about the Spirit anointing him for a specific task, the ministry that he had come to do, dying for the sins of the world. Then in, Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21, As Apostle Paul talks about the change of plans and everything to the Corinthians, this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ has, and has anointed us. And verse 22, and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And again, Paul is talking about the fact that even though my plans have changed, don't think that I've abandoned you. God has knit us together. There is a service that God has called us to do. And is that of being encouragement and offering comfort to you. And so you see that in the New Testament, there is this anointing that God, Holy Spirit, seals or brings to an individual so that they are equipped for a specific task to which God is calling them. But then there's also, secondly, this anointing that is spoken of as a physical act. The applying of oil, ointment, to the body or someone's body. And the, the example that comes to mind is John chapter 12 and verse 3. You remember the account in John chapter 12 where Mary uh, takes a pound of ointment and then very costly and he anoints the body, the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and wipes his feet with her hair. And we are told the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Although John interprets what Mary was doing because of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, that yes, it was a spiritual act of worship, but there was no spiritual power in the ointment. It was oil that was poured physically on someone's body with no spiritual power or anything. It was just oil, symbolic in John 12 for preparation of the body of Christ as death was looming. Now this is what James is talking about, this second anointing. This is the type to which James speaks. He ref he is, he's referring to the physical act of applying oil for physical comfort to one who is sick. And this was common in that day. It was some kind of medicine applied on the sick for their comfort. And when you look at the weddings that James is using, the emphasis is that there is nothing supernatural in the oil itself. It was done as a means to comfort the physical body, the body that was weak. And we must understand that the power lies in God and not in the oil. Healing is obtained through God or from God alone. And that's why James is saying, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's where the healing lies. That's where the power lies. It's not in the oil. But it's in the name of the Lord. And as you pray, you are asking God to heal this person and also that this oil will bring some form of comfort to the sick person for the betterment of their body. And this is crucial for us to, to be clear because we live at the time when there's so much talk about anointing oil 
And, and, and people scramble for it thinking that there is power in the oil. That when you smear or when you pour the oil, the oil will perform miracles and bring about healing. But James is saying, healing is in the name of the Lord. And the summer of it all is that when we pray to God, we are trusting God to bring about healing. And this healing can be instant by God's direct divine intervention or it can be healing through secondary means which could be medication. So when we take medication, yes, while we trust that the, this medication may bring about healing, our ultimate confidence is in God who uses means at his disposal to bring about healing to the sick. And hence, James is saying, let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then verse 15 says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And again, the point there is that authority to heal lies in God's power. Even the authority to forgive sin is in God's power. They are, they, sometimes there are sicknesses that are the result of sin. And James is saying, if your sickness is due to your own personal sin, and when you come to a point where you know that healing can only come from God, and are convicted of the power of God, and you ask God to forgive you of that sin, God will heal you. And if it's because of sin, God will forgive you of your sins. And you recall that there were many times in the Gospels when a person was brought to the Lord Jesus Christ for healing and then the Lord Jesus Christ would say, your sins have been forgiven. And you'd wonder the connection. Because there are times when sickness was due to a personal sin that someone committed and other times sickness just before, before human comes upon us because of sin committed by our forefather Adam and Eve. And therefore, sickness has become something that is common to human beings. And you also recall in John chapter 9, the person was born blind. The disciples were asking, who sinned against, who sinned against God? Is this that this man was born blind? Is it his parents or himself? And the Lord Jesus Christ says, no, none of them. But to show God's sovereign purpose and power, he allowed this person to be born blind. And so we recognize that even in those moments when sickness is upon us, not because of the fault of our own, we still trust God to bring about healing. And while we know sickness is as a result of personal sin, we still go to God, cry out for forgiveness, so that as the Lord forgives us of our sins, he also brings about healing, which is as a result of the sins that we have committed. And the classical example is that in 1 Corinthians 11, when the, the, Lord, the, Lord, the Apostle Paul is talking of writing to the Corinthians and addressing them concerning the Lord's Supper. And he says, that's why some of you are falling asleep. Because you come before the Lord's table in an unworthy manner and therefore God is judging you. God is seeing your hearts and he sees there's no purity of heart. And as you come to the Lord's table, it's just like any other thing. You don't pause to examine yourselves and because of that, you displease God and God is disciplining you. And he says that's why some of you are falling asleep. 
And James has that in mind. That if the sickness is as a result of direct personal sins, call upon God. Ask for forgiveness and he'll forgive you of your sins and bring about healing. The bottom line is that when we are sick, we must call upon others to join us in praying for our situation. There's a community of God's people, not just the elders, but also a community of God's people. As we call upon them to intercede on our behalf before God, we trust that the Lord whom we serve will hear the prayers of his people as they are sent before him on, our, on my behalf and that he will bring about healing. But we must also pray that God the Holy Spirit every day causes us to examine ourselves so that there is no sin in us that we are conscious of the reality of his presence in us and we do not grieve the Holy Spirit lest he causes us to fall in sickness due to our sins. And what we see here is that a prayerless people cut themselves off from God's prevailing power. A prayerless people cut themselves off from God's prevailing power. And the frequent result is this familiar feeling of being overwhelmed, overburdened, overcome, pushed around and being defeated. Because we are failing to bring our items before God. There is power in prayer. We need to engage in prayer. And we must continually do so before the Lord. We ought always to be in the attitude of prayer. But also we have the privilege of interceding on behalf of others. And what a comfort. But also a challenge. that you and I have the privilege to pray for others. And our fellow believers are counting on our prayers. Do we pray for one another? Can God's people count on your prayers? Do God's people, wherever they are, know that there is a group that is committed to pray and I can call upon them and count on them to join me in praying to God? It's a comfort and a challenge. It's a comfort to know that there are people that I can count on to pray for me. It's a challenge because prayer is unnatural to us as human beings. We find it hard to pray. We struggle to pray. And oftentimes, prayer is the last resort when are in different situations or circumstances of life. May the words of James remind us that whether in affliction or in adoration, we must pray.
whether in the valley of the mountains or the heights of the mountains, we must pray. Because God has promised to hear us when we pray, when our prayers are offered in the name of Jesus Christ. And our Lord Jesus Christ is our great example. He was a man of prayer. He prayed. He depended on his father for the success of his work. And he's left us this pattern, this example of prayer. And as we get busy with life, as we want to achieve many things in this evil, difficult world, we must pray. And the prayers of the, light, the righteous achieves much. And may God help us that will be a people that will be characterized of prayer and to be said of us that we are a people of the word and prayer. Amen.